right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers, what the fuck buddies, what the fuck nicks, what the fucksters? How's it going? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast, WTF. Welcome to it. How have you been? Steve Buscemi's on the show today. Uh, you know Steve Buscemi from being in tons of movies and TV shows, like that everyone knows. Reservoir Dogs, Fargo, Boardwalk Empire, Con Air, The Sopranos, The Big Lubowski. He also used to be a New York City firefighter. He's on the advisory council of the group Friends of Firefighters, which provides free mental health and wellness services to active and retired FDNY firefighters. Fire Department in New York City. He's one of the producers of a new documentary, Dust, The Lingering Legacy of 9-11, which I watched. Heavy stuff, ongoing, PTSD, major health problems, cancers, lung problems. People are still dying from that attack on the towers, 2001, 9-11. Let's ease into that, all right? There's some shows that happened that were released this week that it, this week got a little jammed up, sadly. The uh, repost of Ed Asner's 2015 interview, memorializing that great actor. Sashir Zameda uh, from Monday, which was a new podcast. Then uh, The Remembrance, another memorialization. Is that what you say? A memor- In memoriam of Michael K. Williams, which we posted Monday night. Uh, that was just fucking devastating. So I just want to make sure you're on top of or know about all the things that came out this week on this feed. You know what? I need to mention my tour dates. Can I do that with you people? Are we close enough to do that? Helium Comedy Club, St. Louis, Missouri, September 16th, 17th, and 18th. That's coming up next week. Tickets are selling robustly, but the late shows on Friday and Saturday could use a little help. Now, listen, I know that I've been hard on Missouri, and I'll continue to be hard on Missouri, and I know that there are plenty of good people in St. Louis, nice, decent, progressive people that need to be entertained and that are having a hard go of it. I know. And I know this is a vaccinated show, proof of vax or recent test. I know. I know there's a lot of obstacles to people coming uh, in Missouri. Uh, and some of them are principled because I've badmouthed the fucking state so much. Why would they why would they pay to see me? Because you like me and you kind of know I'm right. Uh, Neptune, Seattle, Washington. That's on September 22nd. Eight o'clock show. Tickets are selling well. I would get those if you want to go. Aladdin Theater. We added a second show. These are dates with Dino. Uh, September 24th. Uh, two shows. First show at the Aladdin in Portland, Oregon, sold out. Second show, 10 o'clock show. There are tickets. I would get them. Comedy Attic, sorry, Bloomington, sold out. Uh, Doesn't even matter the dates. Does it? Does it matter? Sure. September 30, October 1, October 2. Dynasty Typewriter shows, October 4th, sold out. Sorry, October 10th, there are tickets. Um, There will be some shows going on sale in the near future. The Largo, another Largo music show, and also a... Regular stand-up show at Largo coming up, and I'll let you know. All this is moving towards the New York Comedy Festival, Town Hall, November 13th, 7 p.m. My mother, can how many comps do you have? How many people can I bring? How many, how many free tickets do you have? How many are you going to need? I'm, I'm probably at least 10. Oh, my God. All right. Yeah, I, I don't know how many I'll have, but uh, I guess no friends. You just bring everybody that I never see who's in my family to the show. 
I think my brother's coming up, though. Apparently, my father and his wife have seen Respect four times, and she texts me every time that she sees it as if it was the first time almost. But just as excited, though she tells me the number of times that she's seen it. I've gotten good uh, good feedback. I'm proud of that work. Proud of that work. I just did a voiceover for another... I'm doing two animated movies. They're both coming out next year. Um, I play Lex Luthor in Super Pets. And I'm I, there, I, there's a lot of people... There's like big stars in that one. Same with the other one, Bad Guys. Me and Rockwell. Craig Robinson, Aquafina. Big people. Exciting. And I got to watch all of Bad Guys. It's good. Anyway... So Buscemi's here. It was good. It was great to talk to him. It was great to see him. Felt like I knew him. He's one of those guys that uh, for most of my adult life has been in movies that I've seen and watched. And you feel like you know at least the Buscemi frequency. I'm finding that with celebrities and with actors and with people I've known my whole life who I get to talk to that you don't know them, but you do know their frequency. You know, everybody kind of hums along at a particular vibration. There's variations in it. Certainly if they're actors or characters, but there is a essence, a vibration, a fundamental frequency to the people that you see over and over again. And usually they're pretty, it's an honest thing. And that's a big chunk of who they are. That's what they are for you, whether they're candid or cagey or withholding or, or never themselves, you get a sense of their fucking frequency you know a lot more about them than they think you do or than you think you do. And I know this as an experienced talker to many different frequencies. So the 9-11 anniversary 20 years is uh, day after tomorrow. What day is today? The 9th. And, you know, Steve and I talk about that because he's involved with firefighters and this movie that he's involved with, uh, one of the producers of Dust, the Lingering Legacy of 9-11 is a powerful movie, a reminder, and also maybe not a reminder, maybe information that you did not know about the sort of uh, cancerous legacy of that tragic event. But Jesus, man, my heart goes out to everybody that lost people there and to people who were there and just to, like, I don't know what trauma looks like once it's buried in your heart and in your mind and what PTSD looks like. But uh, to be there that day and then to wander around those streets for those months after with that smell in the air and this sort of strange kind of, you know, it was it was personal, man. When you lived in New York, it was personal. And I just remember that the woman that I was seeing at the time who later became my second wife was uh, was down there. She went to work that day. And I remember waking up and turning on my big old Dell home computer and on the AOL home screen, the news screen was one tower and, a, and just a, a pile of rubble. And I, I didn't I could not process what was happening. And then I went up to the roof and, and I saw what was happening. There was it was so quiet. And so and then I freaked out because Mishnah was downtown. She had you know, gone. She worked down there. She didn't leave my house, but she left her house. But she she went to work and I couldn't get hold of her. All day, and you couldn't get hold of anybody, and these towers were falling, and the people upstairs in my building, they lost their mother, and they were, everyone was looking, waiting around a TV set. It was just terrible. And Mishna finally got through to me, and she had to walk all the way up. She was covered in ash and walked all the way uptown from, you know, ground zero, basically. And, I mean, it just blew her out, man, and she split 
she went back to Seattle to to deal with the trauma, to deal with, you know, to come down from it. And I was in New York. It was dark, man. And that day, the fucked up thing about that day was that it was so clear, so crisp, so quiet, because they stopped everything. All cars, planes, trains, nothing was moving. You just saw this billowing, horrible smoke coming off that end of Manhattan from the roof, and nothing, you could hear it. There was not a sound. Devastating. Fucking horrible. And just to be there, and everybody was walking around like zombies, shattered. But you know, that was, post 9-11 is where the schism began. It's where the two sides were chosen. Nationalistic and progressive ideas went head to head. It's where the table at the cellar became this shouting match between the three or four liberals and what quickly became many, many kill all the Muslim thinking people. And it was out of that ashes of 9-11 that tough crowd came, Colin show. And I think it was out of the ashes of 9-11 that this current tribalization of comics and comedy has happened. I think out of 9-11, you get... Trump's world that we live in, it's certainly in comedy, I can track the the tribalization of comedy back to that table in that club weeks after 9-11. Have you been down to the memorial? It's something, man. I, I, I think it's really something. Like, I think it's pretty effective. It's worth seeing. Steve Buscemi is a great actor and uh, you can find out more about the new documentary that he produced or was one of the producers of Dust, The Lingering Legacy of 9-11 by going to dust-doc.com. And uh, I no more intro necessary. Steve Buscemi, you know Steve Buscemi. Here he is with me talking on the machine. Nice to see you. Nice to see you. Are you, uh, it looks like you're in a hostage situation with some modern art on the wall. I am. I have to be very quiet so my captors don't hear me. (laughs) 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 I'm I'm in Hollywood. I'm I'm at an Airbnb in Hollywood. Oh, Jesus. You should have come over. I know, but I'm I'm in pre-production for a film that I'm directing in a few days. And so oh. I'm just like back to back meetings and it was just hard to get away. What's this movie that you're doing? It's called the listener. It's just a, it's a small independent film. I've been asked not to divulge too many things about it, but I mean, I could talk about it a little bit. It's, it's about a, a woman who works for at home for a helpline. Yeah. You know, people call in and she works at night so the whole movie is just her, and we only hear the callers uh, off camera. And it's all about mental health, you know, and what people have been going through. You know, not even, uh, I mean, of course, it's about the pandemic a little bit, but ah. but mental health is always issues that have been with so, us for a while. Now. Sure. Are you shooting it in that room you're sitting in now? <laughs> <laughs> we're, sh- 
shooting right now. <laughs> so, like, that's interesting. So it's just going to be uh, the. So you're just going to hear the callers, and you're going to see her reacting. Who's the lead? That's what I'm not at oh, liberty okay. to divulge right now. Okay, but Sorry. it almost sounds like uh, like talk radio, like for a, a little bit, right? It, yeah, yeah. It's um, it's a funny you know challenge because. On the one hand, it's like, oh, it's one person in yeah. one location, you know, yeah. but she's the only one we see. It's yeah. one location. So visually, yeah, it's how, a, a challenge. Yeah. How do you keep that interesting? That's your job. That's what keeps me up at night. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. And <laughs> where, so how do you resolve that? I have an amazing team and, yeah. you know, we'll have uh, got a vision for it going. Well, yeah. I mean, we'll figure it out. And, sure. But really, I guess the audience is going to have to embrace the idea that this is like, we're just with her yeah, and we're going only going to hear the callers. So for part of the film, you know, she's listening. I mean, that's yeah. what it is. Uh, but then there's one call where she divulges a lot of her personal information, which, you know, they're not supposed to do, uh -huh. but it's her way of connecting with this one caller. I, I have a feeling that somewhere in the middle of this production, you're going to be like, we got to add a flashback sequence of her life. Got to mix it up a little. I know. <laughs> <laughs> so how long have you been in town? I got in a few days ago. I was here a few weeks ago just for some pre-production and, you know, and then went back to New York. And But you're used to it, right? Coming here? I've been coming here off and on for 30 years, yeah. And it's the only other city, you know, that I actually know. Like, I know how to get around. I, I know where things are. Right. Um, so, it's but you've, nice. You've shot everywhere in the world, probably, but you know this city. I've shot in a lot of places, but this is the one place that I, you know, when I hit the ground, I kind of yeah. know where I'm going. Yeah. Right. You know, you you can, uh, you know where to eat, you know what to do. Yes. So yeah. what are you, like, are you locked down because of, are they afraid of COVID? Is that what's happening? Boy, it's definitely a challenge to shoot during COVID. Yeah, um, I've done it. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I I, I do the series Miracle Workers. Um, and, oh, yeah. I saw uh, that. How's that going? Really fun. You know, we just, we're... The third season is airing now. That's with Daniel Radcliffe and you? Daniel Radcliffe, who I love. And we were lucky because this season, it's an anthology show. So each season uh -huh. is a different location and different theme. And this year it's the Oregon Trail. And so we were mostly outside. We were shooting in Santa Clarita. Um, so that really helped being outside. But we were tested three times a week. And yeah, that's what, yeah I, that's, I was on a set that did that. Santa Clarita has... Uh, has uh, uh, acted in many movies as many different locations. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it seems like everyone shoots out there. How the fuck did they make that look like Oregon? <laughs> a lot of special effects. I guess. Wow, it's like the desert out there, isn't it? Well, we were shooting on this ranch. Actually, there was a lot of different landscapes. Oh. Um, but, but, the hard, no, but actually, the hardest one to get was just like flat, flat land. Because oh, it's, yeah. it's uh, pretty hilly there. But yes, it's very warm and desert-like. Yeah, I've uh, out of, uh, I've randomly been you know using a line of yours in uh, some of my Instagram lives, and for no reason, uh, sometimes I'll just go, "Are we square?" <laughs> That's a good one. I like that. It's a, it's a great one. <laughs> just holding your face together. I, I uh, you know, 
we were in the city to I think at the same time for many years. But I I was watching. You know, I know that you're you're sort of uh, doing a little press around this uh, this Bridget Gormley yeah. documentary Dust, uh, really about the struggle to get uh, legislation passed so these uh, survivors of of nine eleven both civilian uh, firefighters police anyone who got sick from it could be taken care of right first responders yeah yeah first yeah, responders and people who were down in the uh, yeah lived there and went to school there and, you know you i know. knew that uh, john stewart was involved in the hearings and stuff but i i just you know it's it's really uh, amazing when you when you kind of lay cuz i was in the city when that happened and we were doing comedy a couple weeks after that and you know i remember that smell in the air and i remember you know, in my building in Queens, the woman upstairs from me was there and, and, and died in the towers. And the guy downstairs in my building was working, I guess, with you, uh, excavating, you know, mm-hmm. the, the stuff. And he he just broke down like this macho, you know, Latino guy. You know, he'd come home and I ran into him in the hall and he just couldn't keep it together. You know, and, it, and you know, I just remember having that, that feeling that, uh, you know, the things weren't okay and there's no way they could be okay yet they were really pushing that line and i like this documentary really kind of focuses on that weird confluence of we need to appear strong you know being being sort of that was the selling that was the selling of the idea to the people of uh, of new york but the bottom line is they were concerned about economics really yeah and it parallels today, you know, I mean, uh-huh. when the, when the, you know, when the pandemic hit, you know, we were hearing the same things, you know, that we were so afraid of shutting down the economy. And I think that was certainly true at that time. Um, but I don't know if anything could have stopped, you know, any of the first responders and the volunteers, you know, who were there Yes. to do this, you know, enormous job, but it would have been good to at least know the dangers going in, you know, well, yeah, or, at least, or at shortly after anyways, it, it didn't yeah. like yeah. in my recollection, it was such chaos and such, it was, it was totally devastating. You know, like everybody was in a state of, of real shock, you know, yeah. for, for months. I mean, people were walking around like zombies. Absolutely. And, and I guess, but, but information really did start to come in fairly quickly about what was needed. And not unlike the pandemic, they were ill-equipped to protect these guys. Right. And, and the stuff that they did provide just didn't work. There was either not enough to go around or it didn't really work or, yeah, it just, um, the operation was already underway and it was hard. You know, you can't sort of stop that machine once yeah. it's in, and it's just sad because, you know, there were, you know, guys down there, you know, I mean, people knew, you know, you could just feel it like that it was not safe. And you would hear people say, you know, I'll bet we're going to, you know, die from this in 20 years. Who knew that? I mean, it would take, it only took about five years for these 9-11 related cancers to start um, materializing. And we had people dying within the first, you know, with, within the first decade or or before, yeah, and they're still dying, and they're still sick. And I give uh, so much credit to John Stewart and John Feel, and all the first responders who you know would constantly go to D.C. and you know lobby 
our politicians to just make this permanent, you know? Yeah, it's it's sort of it's it's just heartbreaking and weird uh, that, you know, that it, it, it takes us that you, when you really realize the kind of lack of uh, uh, of empathy or willingness for for Congress to engage in terms of money to do something that, you know, is should be a, a moral no brainer. Right. I, I just find it really strange when. I mean, John Stewart said it best in the film, you know, what, what does never forget mean? You know, they, they, they all were saying it and tweeting it to never forget, never forget. Well, okay. What is, what does that mean? Then we take the people who are down there uh, for, for however long it takes, you know, there's, there's, there's no time limit on, on that. So when you were a firefighter, I mean, where you grew up in the city, right? Well, I was born in Brooklyn, and then uh, we moved to Long Island when I was when I was eight. So I spent my real formative years in uh, Long Island, and then I moved into the city when I was uh, about nine, 19. So I mean, I lived in in yeah. I mean, I've always lived in New York, and most of my time has been in the city. Yeah. Where did you move in the city when you were nineteen? I moved to the East Village Avenue A. Between Ninth and Tenth Street. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I I lived in. I was uh, at, on Second between A and B. Oh yeah. In uh, just, you know, in eighty nine, ninety, ninety one. Yeah. Wow, A and not yeah. A between you were at A and what? Uh, between Ninth and Tenth Street. So oh. this was like nineteen seventy eight. Yeah. Wow. And, um, I mean, it was you know uh, my that. The first apartment that I had was, you know, I mean, it was a hundred bucks a month, you know, I don't want to sound like one of these geezers, you know, back in my day. It was, yeah. <laughs> but that's who we are. hundred bucks a month. There was a bathtub in the, in the, you know, middle of the room and, and I had a piece of plywood on top of it. And that yeah, was I, my, my table, you know, when I, when I wasn't using it. So you had, you had one of those, uh, those things that you hook up to the faucet to, to shower while you're late, yeah. sitting in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember those apartments. Yeah, was your family firefighters? No, I mean I did have an uncle uh, who was a firefighter, um, but my dad was on the sanitation department. He was, you know, he um, worked. He worked for the city, and uh, so he always, you know, kind of knew about what civil s- service test was coming up. You know, he told me and my brothers that uh, as long as we're living under his roof which we were, you know, like when we turned 18, uh, that we would have to take a civil service test, whatever one was available. And for me, it was the fire department. And um, that was the only one I took. I, you know, there was a physical and a written test and I trained for the physical. I did okay. I did pretty well on the written test. And that's how I was able to like even make the list. And it still took four years for them to get to my name. What is a civil service test? I don't know what this is. It's just basically a test to see if you, you know, can (laughs) read and write and answer basic questions. But there's always a couple of questions that are meant to throw you off. But uh, my dad, knowing that you can, you can get prior tests, you know, I mean, they used to, they, they would publish these tests so I actually studied to see what the types of questions were that were where it was, you know, maybe a little bit more difficult. Otherwise, it's a 
pretty, I don't remember the questions, but they were pretty simple. But your father believed in this idea that, that the, the civil service was a good way to go, that it was him being concerned about your future. Absolutely. He said, it's, you know, you have security and, and, you know, it's, it's a city job. You'll, you'll have, you know, benefits, security. He knew that I wanted to be an actor, but he would say to me, ah, you know, you put in your 20 years, uh, then you could be an actor, you know? (laughs) I mean, not a bad idea, but, you know, but as you know, in this business, you have to go where the opportunities arise. And I was, I mean, I was doing both, you know, for, for, for a while I was doing theater and then I started doing some independent film. So wait, so in like, so when you went there at 19, you graduated high school and you're like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to go live in New York and I'm going to do this. And at that time, I mean, the East village, you know, what was going on there artistically was kind of crazy. There was a lot of stuff going on. It was amazing. It was, you know, I was there because the rent was cheap and it took me a while to like figure out, oh my God, I'm in like the, the art center of the world. I mean, you had independent film that was just sort of, you know, kind of uh, blossoming bands, you know, the punk bands, alternative bands, the art world was exploding. There was all these like pop up galleries and artists and performance art was all over and it was just such a vibrant place to be and such a community you know it was all happening like in that area below 14th street you know yeah so what what did you first you know kind of kind of get him like how, how many brothers and sisters do you have i have three brothers isn't one of them an actor didn't one of them i know one of them yeah, my brother Michael is an actor, and he's been in a few of my films and uh, that I've uh, made. And uh, yeah, he's he's been he's been working all along. I feel like he's been around the comedy scene a little. I kind of feel like he was around, or I kind of knew him somehow. Well, um, I mean, I actually used to do stand up, so I don't know, but I don't. But you wouldn't have known me from stand up. No, but where'd you do it? I <laughs> I don't know how this happened, but I actually passed the auditions at the Improv. I'm like um, 44th. Yeah. Yeah. And I mainly just hung out there and just sat in the back and I would watch people like Jerry Seinfeld and Gilbert Gottfried. And, uh, and it was an amazing time to be there. What year? Um, yeah. This was like 78, 79. Uh-huh. You know, if I got on, it wasn't like until like really, really late at late at night or sometimes they would let me open you know when it you know like at nine o'clock when there was so was that people. was was bud still there or just silver silver was there yeah Never met bud. i think bud was already in la yeah for sure yeah yeah so you had a bit you had an act i had a cobbled together act that i just sort of you know i was influenced by so many different comics and i wasn't sure like what my style was you know like because i liked everybody you know i mean growing up i loved comedy and comics, you know, but it was a pretty diverse, you know, the people that I liked were George Carlin, Steve Martin, Richard Pryor, you know, I mean, they were all different from, from each other. Yeah. That was the thing about being a, you know, trying to do stand up was that I, I really couldn't find my voice. I mean, I would watch people like Jerry and nobody was, nobody else was like him. Yeah. Nobody else was like Gilbert. And I just really couldn't find what it was. Well, what, like, what's my, what's my style. And I also 
didn't like the aloneness of it. I liked it, you know, I mean, like when it was going well, if you got laughs, that's the greatest feeling in the world. But yeah, having to like write your material and practice on your own and, and, uh, I much prefer working with actors. Well, it's interesting because, uh, you know, I understand that struggle, that that this idea that you think it's a decision you make to be who you are on stage, where it isn't really. Uh, you know, some guys, you know, figure out what the parameters of their particular uh, talent and character are early on as part of the job. But I, I sort of like, it, it is in some ways limiting um, depending on, on your freedom of mind, you know, that, you know, where you land with your persona, but, but oddly, you know, like if I think about when I started seeing you in movies to this day, I feel like I have a very, you know, strong sense of who you are. (laughs) Well, that's the interesting thing. I mean, I feel like I've found my voice or whatever through, you know, acting and roles that I've played. But then when I think about some of the roles that I've played, I, I go, well, <laughs> is that me? You know, <laughs> but I always, you know, like which put, ones, which ones are the ones where you're yeah, like, like, you mentioned Fargo, you know, it's like, that, you know, I mean, that guy is just despicable on so many <laughs> levels, but there's something I still like about him <laughs> or there's something that I can identify you know, with his struggle or whatever, you know, whatever has made him, yeah. you know, who, who, who he is, you're like, okay, there's enough of that in my background or whatever that I could, that I could relate and put it into the character. It's just the insecurity of that guy, just like he, he never quite has a handle on shit, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and when I think about it, I think about that character. It's a very funny character in a way. He is very funny. He's, yeah. you know, He's sort of ridiculous, but (laughs) what I loved about him is that he always thought he had a handle on things, and I got this. Yeah, yeah. Don't worry, I got this. (laughs) Doesn't have anything. (laughs) It just gets away from him pretty quickly. (laughs) So, what were you getting involved in? You know, before you became a firefighter, when you were down there in the Lower East Side and kind of your brain's opening up to what's going on, what were the, some of the stuff that you were like, holy shit, and, and, that you saw down there uh, early on? Well, a few things. There was, um, did you ever know the actor and comedian Rockets Regular? I think I brought him up to you. You know, it's like, it was funny because I interviewed once you once when I was on an Air America show years ago. And, oh wow! And uh, Brendan, my producer, who was just here, said you brought somebody up that you 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 both knew, and and I said it was either it was either Maggie Estep, who I know, who I knew. Yes, who well, I loved Maggie. Yes, and yes. I think that's who it was because I knew her. Yeah. We were kind of friends. Yeah. But but I I then I brought then I said maybe it was Rockets Red Glare, who I didn't know, but I was sort of fascinated with. Because he seemed like a character. He was such a character. Like yeah. what was so? Would you see him? Like what was he doing? Well, he had he had this cabaret show that he would do, and he would it would bounce around a few locations. But uh, I met him because he was a bouncer at a bar that we all used to go to. The That's Rainbow. right. Uh, briefly, I think he he worked as a bodyguard for Sid Vicious. <laughs> That's right. But he also did stand up, and he was also in Jim Jarmusch's um, early early films. He was in Stranger Than Paradise and Down by Law, and then I worked with him in Mystery Train. 
But yeah, he was just this downtown fixture and he would have these shows. And one night uh, I finally got up the courage to, you know, tell him that I was an actor and I gave him a flyer for, you know, a little play I was doing. I told him that I did some stand up, and without ever seeing me perform, he went, hey, I'm doing a show uh, on Sunday. Why don't you do something? And I was just kind of shocked that he would let me perform in his cabaret show without knowing anything about me. And it was in his show that I, um, you know, kind of the first time that I did stand up down, you know, like, like in the, uh, in the East village and met people, uh, you know, Mark Boone Jr. He of, uh, Sons of Anarchy fame. Yeah. He was also working in, uh, Rockets shows with another, uh, actor named Tom Wright. And the two of them were doing these sketches or one act plays. And so I got to know them and then started to work with, with them. And then eventually just worked with Boone. And it was from that time, you know, working with Rockets and then working with Boone that Boone and I started to write and perform our own material. And we did that for many years. So, but it, like, I can't imagine that it was framed as traditional stand-up because it always seemed that there was a slight tension between mainstream stand-up comedy and what was sort of evolving as performance art on the Lower East Side. Right. So then there was the whole performance art, you know, aspect of it. And um, through my late wife, Joe Andres, I got to meet people like Tom Murren, who was uh, the alien comic. You know, he was he would just find things on the street and make his own props and costumes. Uh -huh. uh, there was another uh, duo called Dance Noise, Lucy Sexton and Annie Obst. And they did this like sort of like political burlesque. Um, and this is in the late 70s? This is well, no, now we're moving into the early 80s. OK. So, um, and another performance artist, Mimi Gazy, who was also a wonderful singer. There were a lot of people like this. And Tom and Joe, they used to, and that group, they, uh, they had a show called The Full Moon Show. And uh, they would always do a show like every full, full moon. The four of those, uh, you know, those four acts were like the core. Then they would invite other acts in. I used to like... Blue Man Group, like like I first saw them in a in a full moon show. So, so what were you doing in the team thing? Was that a straight comedy or was it sketches mostly? Yeah, Boone and I would write these characters and do these like situations. They were halfway between like sketches and uh, one act plays. You know, uh -huh. usually comedic. It seems like this tradition carried on into you know the nineties when I was there with like Collective Unconscious. There was certain uh, surf reality that place where the showcase was sort of a variety show but it was definitely not mainstream or or it didn't have any parameters really yeah there was you know you'd see a lot of things that just you probably only see you know there yeah and there was definitely like a community everybody would go to each other's shows and not to say that people weren't ambitious but there was, you know, the goal wasn't to get an agent and to, you know, like get something yeah. you know, main, uh, mainstream. The idea really was to sort of experiment and explore and 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 a lot of the times do something outrageous. Right. Know? And and like, well, like Rockets was sort of uh, was he a particularly talented guy or just a character? Both. 
Yeah. I, I think he was very talented, but it's like he was always performing, you know, like he, that's just who he was, you know, and, um, and he was also, uh, you know, the big thing about Rockets was that he always needed money. He'd always hit you up for 20 bucks. He'd, you know, and then well, he had always, a habit, didn't he? He did. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He definitely struggled, but he was so, you know, lovable in every other way. It's so funny. The first time I think I, I noticed him was when he, he plays the, the killer in talk radio in the film. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That was huge. Like we all thought, wow, rockets, you did it, man. You know, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I mean, he had, he had parts in a lot of films and, um, yeah, it's sad. You know, I mean, he, he's been gone 20 years now, but, um, but uh, yeah, he was quite the actor. What about like Bogosian and those cats? I mean, like, was that all, were they all contemporaries like Tom Noonan, Bogosian? Yeah. Tom Noonan, I knew a little bit. And then we both worked on Mystery Train. Eric, I didn't know at the time. I kind of got to know him later, but yeah, but he was like, he was like one of the, one of the giants of that, you know, like that was, I think what, uh, you know, people like Eric and Spalding Gray. Um, yeah. That, that really had it down. Like, I think that's what people really aspire to, to, you know, like to have their own shows because mainly it was a lot of group group shows. And, but those and, guys like Spalding came out of the Worcester group though, right? Yes. And the Worcester group was another, you know, and they're still going strong and they're still like yeah. my theater group. Um, You're there, your Willem theater Defoe. group. You're with them. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, I worked with them a little bit, you know, Willem Dafoe worked with them for many years and um, when he first started making movies, I think when he was doing Platoon, they asked me to come in and do some of the things that he was doing in that in that show. And uh, and then I got to do some other shows with with them. Uh, but Willem was, you know, he was one of the first guys that I remember seeing that didn't have any qualms about, you know, breaking out of the experimental world and you know, like downtown and doing movies and, yeah. and he got a little flack for it too, you know, but, uh, for me, it was like, well, why not? This is what he wants to do. And he's, he's able to make a living and he's able to give back to the company. And, and, uh, and I, you know, that was, that was a real example for me to follow. Is it interesting about that flack? I mean, who the fuck are those people? I mean, I've been, I've been those, I've been that guy. I get where it comes from. Yeah, but it, yeah. it doesn't come from a place of principle. It comes from some sort of weird, you know, attachment to to uh, to something you think is uh, a freedom or 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 rebellious or or you know, it's it. There's an immaturity to it. Yeah, I mean, I get it, I get it. But none of those, uh, I shouldn't say none, but a lot of those people that were sort of like giving that flack, it doesn't end well for them. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're in a much better place now because it seems like there is, you know, there's a lot more of people going back and forth between doing theater. Oh, yeah, of course. Stuff. Yeah. I mean, there's not at some point it kind of broke down that, yeah. you know, that the integrity of who you are is not based on, you know, the project you're involved with necessarily. Right. Right. Yes. And if if you're of a certain ilk, you can transcend it. If you're not, then you become a hack, and that was your destiny, anyways. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but 
but that but what about like uh, did you do any of those Foreman plays? I did a Richard Foreman play, yeah, Miss Universal Happiness, and we did it. He used the Booster Group. He used the whole Booster Group for that for that particular. Who play. was in that crew at that time? There was Kate Vaughn. There was um, Ron Vauder. Um, Willem was in it. Francis. Francis McDormand. No, Francis wasn't uh, part of the group yet. So um, she uh, uh, she came a bit uh, later. Uh, but even Elizabeth LeCompte, who was the director uh, of the of the Worcester Group, she also acted in that in that in that piece. So it seemed like such amazing time because it's all gone now. Steve, like it's like like I caught the tail end of that because I was on the Lower East Side. Eighty nine is when right. I really got to New York, and it was already sort of like over that that whole sort of like whatever was going on through from the late sixties on into the early eighties. You know that generation of of performers is it was sort of gone, and there was a new crew, but you know it, it was a different generation almost, and that whole yeah. sort of sense of what the Lower East Side stood for was already starting to buckle by the late eighties. Yeah. And I actually, you know, we actually moved to Brooklyn in like 91. Mm. And I remember feeling like, okay, I think it, I think it is time to move on. But also I think, you know, there were other pockets of, you know, things happening that I just, you know, just didn't know about. I mean, I think the East village at that time really was the place. And of course things changed, but then, I loved how Brooklyn kind of became also, I mean, it took a, it, it took a while, but especially with like the music scene, Brooklyn became like the new frontier yeah. for, for that. So it just, you know, part of it is, was just, I aged out of it, you know? Yeah. Um, but I was so, I'm so grateful that I was around at that, at that time and in the middle of it. Right. I mean, what, where'd you meet Jarmouche? Was that, was that a New York thing? Yeah, like I uh, I met him and Sarah Driver at uh, Rockets show. You know, like that's how they knew of me. That's how I knew of them. And he was was he a student? He no, he had I, when I met him. I think he had already shot Stranger Than Paradise, but it hadn't come out yet. You know, he just looked like a really interesting guy to me. And Boone was the one who would tell me, like Boone knew everybody, and he told me, "Oh yeah, that's Jarmish, and he did this, and you know." I mean, at that time, too, you know, if you were able to make a film, an independent film uh. that was halfway decent, it played in theaters for a while. You know, I was just talking about this with somebody the other day. There was a movie, Liquid Sky. I don't yeah. know if you. Yeah. It played at the Waverly for like months. You know, yeah. it was pretty out there. And, and but it but it played for a while when when Jarmusch's film first came out, it was. Very exciting because it was such a non-traditional, you know, film, and it yeah. was in black and white, and it's all master shots. And we had never seen, or I mean, most people had never seen this cast before. You know, John Laurie, Richard Edson, Esther Ballant, Rockets. Um, that it was exciting. It meant, oh my God, he did it. You know, like it just inspired everybody. Like you know, we can do this, and there's an audience out there for it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I remember seeing it just being like, what the fuck is this? And John, but he was part of the music scene there. Like, did you know, like, that whole No Wave crew? A little bit. I mean, I, yeah, I, I, I really wasn't part of that whole music, 
you know, scene. Like I didn't, I, I met them all later, like Sonic Youth and, you know, like people in those, in those yeah. bands. But, um, but yeah, the lounge lizards, uh, I would see them all the time, you know, uh, John Laurie and Evan, what an amazing band that, that they were. And yeah, there were a lot of, you know, I mean, it all sort of kind of just intermingled, you know, performance art and the bands and, and, um, Nick Zed, Nick Zed. Yes. I used to see him, you know, <laughs> we used to go out and, uh, paper flyers, you know, like we would like get the bucket of like paste and you put up your own flyers, on you know, we're on construction sites or wherever you can. And I would often see, see him and uh, doing the same, the same thing. And there was a wonderful place called Dorinka. Uh, a friend of mine, Gary Ray, he had this little performance space in his basement apartment. Wow. And we would perform there. And I remember Nick Zed showing all of his films there one night and he's operating the projector and it would break down and we'd have to wait for him to fix it. And it was great. <laughs> Those were the days. <laughs> what about Julian Beck? Yeah, well, that's the Living Theater. I didn't really see too much of the Living Theater because they were kind of, you know, their heyday was really before my time, even though they, they like kept doing work. But Julian Beck was another one. We had the same manager, Mark Amiton, and he represented Julian and he um, and Judith Molina and other people of like from downtown. And he was helping us all get work, you know, like on Miami Vice or the Equalizer, you know, and these things would sustain us, you know, it would, you know, we were able to make some money and then go back to doing other things. And uh, he was the, yeah. he was the, uh, the, the, the Faustian valve for the <laughs> Lower yeah. East Side artists. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, were you, were you training as well, or was it just all hands on? I, well, I took acting classes when I was, uh, 17 or 18, I went to the Lee Strasberg Theater Institute. And um, I studied with John Strasberg, uh, Lee's son, and um, John's wife at the time, Sabra Jones, uh, and, you know, a few other teachers. I went there for six months, you know, yeah. on like, like a full course thing, you know, like four acting classes a week, a voice class, a movement class. And then eventually John sort of broke away from the Institute and started his own, his own uh, place. And so I was with him on and off for a few years, but that was really beneficial because, you know, I basically grew up in Long Island, had no idea what the theater scene was in New York, didn't know anything about plays. And so that was a big edu education for me to like, just watch what other people were doing and, learn about Eugene O'Neill, Tennessee Williams and, yeah. and get to, and get to do, just get to act, just get to, you know, be in a scene. How much crossover when you did the firefighting, like when did you start to do that as a job and how were you managing acting and being a Lower East Side guy and being a, a New York city firefighter? So when I first, you know, got on the job, um, this was, in November of 1980, I just stopped doing everything. I stopped doing stand-up. I stopped taking acting classes. I just figured, let me just do this for a while. And I didn't tell anybody in the firehouse, Engine 55, where I worked in Little Italy. I just didn't tell anybody 
what I what I did. They knew I was half a weirdo because I lived in the East Village. None of them lived in the city. You know, they all live in Staten Island or Long Island. Or, and so that was their first clue, like, yeah. you know. Um, and then I had uh, this other firefighter from a different company, Engine 24, uh, this firefighter that I had heard about, his name is, was Dean Tulipane, and he was an actor. And but the way they would talk about, oh yeah, that that, that guy Dean, oh yeah, he's a little, you know, he's whatever, you know, he's an actor, you know. <laughs> <laughs> they, I could tell that they liked him, but they but they but they thought he was weird. Anyway, when I first met Dean, and he heard about me that I lived in East Village, he sort of outed me, you know. You know, he's like, well, what do you do? Like, what? Like how, like, how come you live there? Like, what are you, an actor? Are you a writer? Are you... And I sheepish, sheepishly said that I was, you know, I had done some acting and stand up. And the guys in my company looked at me like, you? Because I was, seriously, I was the quietest guy in the firehouse. Yeah. And, um, the quietest? Me break out of my shell. And, and, uh, and then, you know, there were some, like, firefighter parties where I would start, I would, you know, drink. And, and uh, be drunk enough to then get up on a chair and start like doing like a Don Rickles routine on like everybody, and it was risky, but they liked it. They, you know, so you did that, it. Got, that got me over. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's some risky stuff, man. I know. <laughs> but so you stayed at you. You were at the uh, you. You were with the 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 the. What do you call it? The outfit, the unit, the the engine house for how long? Yeah, yeah, I was uh, I was there for uh, for four years, and in, in 1984, uh, I got cast in an independent film called Parting Glances, and I was also doing a play with um, John Jezerin, who I had worked with a lot, and um, I just couldn't do all three things. I I just um, so I ended up taking a leave of absence from the fire department three months at first, then I would extend it for another three months and then another six months. And then it just became clear. Uh, I'm, you know, my, my window of opportunity feels like it's now and I should take it and just, and, and not go back. So that's what I did. It's interesting in that. Could you have seen it being your life? Um, yeah, I mean, sometimes I think, well, maybe I should have done my twenty years and <laughs> then retired and then got attacked. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but there was something. Yeah, you know, I remember, even though I came to love the job, I do remember, like, the night before I started, you know, uh, and I did six weeks of training on Randall's Island, where, where they have the uh, the fire academy. I just remember the night before kind of just feeling down and thinking, all right, I guess, I guess I'm not going to do acting. I'm not going to do stand up. I'm not, this is what I'm, this is what I'm going to be doing now and feeling really um, depressed about it. Um, it turned out that I ended up loving the job, but yeah, but just the thought of like, Oh, uh, I just became my dad. Like I just became like, I'm gonna, you know, is this the, is this my path? Not that there's anything wrong with what my dad did, and I, I'm, you know, like I'm so proud of 
what he was able to accomplish and provide. And to me, it was such a an act of love for his sons that he wanted us, you know, uh, he didn't quite, you know, think that we were college material, maybe, yeah. or maybe it was just he didn't want to pay for college. But uh, <laughs> but he but he was looking out for us, you know. He like he just wanted to make sure that uh, that uh, we'd be okay. Well, it, it, is he uh, uh, immigrant? No, I mean both his uh, parents were, but they but but they came as uh, kids. But you know what's funny is that you know even though his parents were immigrants, um, they did not they did not speak Italian in the house. And they were really intent on, you know, being American, you know, because I think at that time there was a lot of discrimination against Italians. And so they really wanted their kids to be, you know, American. And even myself, I mean, my mom's not Italian. My mom, you know, is Irish, Dutch, English. So growing up, I never really felt Italian. You know, when I think of like my heritage, I think Brooklyn, you know, like as if (laughs) I'm from the nation of Brooklyn, you know, Yeah. even though I I ended up like moving away from Brooklyn when I was eight, but now I'm, I'm, I've been back in Brooklyn for the past 30 years. So when 9-11 happened, you, you, did you go back to the house, the firehouse that you had started with? To try to help. Yeah, what happened was on uh, the next day uh, on the twelfth, I, um, I, you know, like I still had my my turnout coat and my helmet, and um, I just grabbed those things and I took the subway in to the Lower East Side, walked over to Engine Fifty Five on Broom Street, and uh, because I wasn't, I just didn't have any information. I kept calling the firehouse, you know, like the day before. And of course there was, there was no answer because I knew that they would be there. And then I eventually learned that five of them were missing. And uh, one of them was a good friend of mine who I used to work with Faust Apostle. And, um, and then I was driven into the site that day, walked around for hours and then found my company, found Engine 55 working there um, and asked them if I could join them. And uh, they were, I could tell they were a little suspicious at first, you know, like, what are you doing here? Um, But, um, but I worked with them that day and the captain of 55 at that time, Captain Toomey, at the end of the day, we all went back to the firehouse and he said, look, uh, if you want to come back, you're, you're welcome. Just come to the firehouse early and we'll take you in. And so I did that for the next few days. I was so grateful because so many people who were in New York at that time, you know, wanted to help. And, you know, I mean, a lot of people gave blood, but there were just no victims. There were no, you know, there was that, you know, it was just so devastating and people wanted to volunteer and did in, in, you know, a lot of ways, did whatever they could. But I actually had, I was privileged enough to have access to the site and to and to be in the thick of it and to just experience that, um, the humanity of what was going on there. And and did you, have have you experienced any, any health issues or, or did you experience any uh, uh, PTSD of any kind just from being down there? 
Definitely. I have not experienced any health issues and I get myself checked out, but definitely, uh, yeah, post-traumatic stress. Absolutely. Like when I, I was only there for like five days, but when I stopped going and, you know, sort of tried to just live my life again, it was really, really hard. You know, I was depressed. I was anxious. I couldn't make a simple decision. Um, uh, yeah, all, yeah, all those things. It just, it, it's still with me. It's still, you know, like there are times when I talk about nine eleven and I feel myself, I'm just right back there. I just, I start to get cho- choked up and I, and I realize, ah, this is, this is still, a big part of me. And now that we're in our, you know, this is the 20th year anniversary. Um, yeah, it's, I know that for a lot of people that were down there, it's definitely a trigger. And um, yeah, so for the past, whatever, 10 or so years, or maybe longer, I've been working with this group called Friends of Firefighters, and they provide uh, free mental health services and counseling to firefighters, active, retired, and their, and their families, because, you know, the first responders that were down there for a length of time, and, you know, a lot of them were there for months, they didn't see their families. They were going to funerals, you know, like all the time, or they were at the site and survivor's guilt is, you know, was like a big factor, you know, like, why did they survive? Like why a lot of guys were supposed to be working that day, but, you know, somebody else was working for them and, and were killed. And um, so, yeah, I'd say that, you know, there's definitely like the health issues, you know, that are related to people being down there, you know, definitely yeah. physical, but also mental. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Like I, you know, I, it was, it, the whole thing was so galvanizing and, horrendous in a way you know around being i just remember being because i lived in queens but like there was something about being a new yorker at that time that was like Mm -hmm. really felt deep you know and it was i i found myself being offended by people coming to to new york to kind of like you know rubberneck the thing like i Mm -hmm. i I remember feeling very angry that, you know, once, you know, they could get in that all these people from the middle of the country were just coming to look at that smoking pit. And I was like, it just felt uh, intrusive and invasive to me. I get it. I get it. And, you know, and it was hard for me to, once I stopped going down there, it was hard for me to see any images of it or to be near it. Or I didn't go again until like months and months later when the site was, uh, you know, pretty much done, but they, but there was still cleanup to be done. And I remember seeing one of my old lieutenants at Engine 55, Ken Grabowski, and he was a chief now and he was kind of in charge of, you know, like a lot of that operation. And, um, it was just, you know, just knowing that he had been there that whole time and I had not been there for months and months and months. And, um, and I could just see it in his face. It's sort of, you know, it's just hard to describe, you know, like 
what what these first responders you know went through being there that you know the ones that were there for months or the whole time and the after effects you know yeah. that we've been experiencing is just uh, it's it's heartbreaking i just remember being at um you know around people and being at, at meetings where you know people were lost like it was it just it just never ends for some people and that's really yeah. What that move that documentary Dust is about, you know, that 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 day is every day. Yes, exactly. Does you do you find that this stuff, I mean, I guess it's hard to to cuz I I've only seen you uh, act uh, to be a, a firefighter in that one film, the Judd Apatow film. Yeah. That was the first time I ever played a firefighter, which <laughs> which was kind of fun. Uh, cuz that was kind of like, oh, this is what I would be doing had I stayed on the job. Yeah, and, yeah. And you knew the guys that, that were the, the real firefighters that were there? Some of them, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, But it was great to be in a movie with Pete Davidson and knowing his real background. Yeah. And, you know, and then in the film, I've, you know, playing someone who knew his dad, you know. Yeah. That was, it was, really, that was really special. And what I loved about that film, you know, so, so many kids lost, lost their parents. Right. And for the ones, you know, like the firefighters kids, if you were a young kid, you know, all of a sudden you're, you know, your dad is like put on this pedestal. I mean, rightly so, but what that does to a kid, I think it's like, I'll never measure up. I'll never, you know, I never got to know my dad and I'll never be able to measure up. Um, and what I love about that film is that Pete's dad in the movie was, you know, somewhat of a goofball and an asshole, you know, and that's when Pete learns that, you know, when Pete, when Pete's character learns that and thinks, oh, my dad was like me, you know, my dad was a, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Kind of a jerk, just like, just like me, you know, that sort of humanized him. Yeah. And I think, you know, so rightly so that, you know, that, that, that these the first responders and the ones that we lost are, you know, put up on a pedestal. I think it's also, we have to be careful not to mythologize them too much as being like these, you know, like super beings. They, you know, and any firefighter, any first responder, anybody that we lost on that day, um, they experienced fear. They, they, you know, um, they did their job, but, uh, you know that it had to be, you know, that that it was fearful. I mean, how do you go into a situation like that? And when they, oh, when they, not, those. Not be afraid. You have to overcome that. You know, that to me is what the true heroism is, is that they, you know, overcame their fears and did their job anyway. They just went up into those buildings, the burning buildings. So many of them went up. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like it chokes me up now as watching that thing and it's just. To, you yeah. know, to know that so many of them were up in that building, heading yeah. up. Heading up and walking, you know, walking up all those flights oh. with their heavy equipment and a, a, a whole length of hose because you have to bring that in too. And, you know, and then seeing the people running out in panic, you know, and, but you're going up, you know, wow. or you're helping people out and, um, and it was not a quick evacuation by any means, you know, it, it was, it was 
uh, it took it took a long time, and um, it was an incredible rescue mission. Yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, that they got that many people out. Yeah. So, like, so now this is you're directing the film you're working on now. Yes. So yeah. it's been a bit, huh? It's been a while since I've directed a film. I've been, I've been, yeah. That the last one I did was in 2009, Interview, mm. and but I've been directing, you know, some uh, TV mm-hmm. in the last few years, and I've been lucky enough to direct on the show that I do, Miracle Workers, and that's been that's been fun, and it's always good to sort of exercise that muscle because I don't really feel like a director, you know. <laughs> I I've 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 done it, you know, over the years. But I don't do it enough to I feel like I know what I'm doing. You know, it's always like a learning experience. <laughs> like every, yeah. every every time I do it. How do you choose the, you know, like I, you do a lot of comedy and you have these relationships with certain people like the Coens. It seems like you have a, a relationship with Adam Sandler. You know, how yeah. how do you decide, you know, I mean, you work all the time. You're one of these. You know, and now as I've done a little bit of acting, I know when. You know, you look at a resume and you see someone's done seven films in a year. Sometimes that's only a couple of weeks work, you know, yeah. uh, right. Mm-hmm. How do you decide what you're going to do? You don't, it doesn't seem like you take anything. In the beginning, I did. In the beginning, <laughs> I just wanted the experience. I just wanted to work. And uh, and I was lucky that I, you know, got to work with people who were just coming up, like Jim Jarmusch and the Cohen brothers and... Tarantino. Uh, I really had a lot of films, you know, that uh, I just wanted to be on a set and be working, and it didn't really matter the part I was playing um, to some extent. I mean, you know, I I had to relate to it in some way, but I mean, I'm much more discerning now, and I feel grateful and lucky that I'm that I'm able to be more uh, choosy, but. In the beginning, yeah, it was just I just I just want to work. But it's interesting because you were there at the beginning for the Coens, for Jarmish and and Tarantino. That was that was incredible to get to work on Quentin's uh, first film, and it certainly didn't feel like his first film. I'm just was so impressed that he had so much confidence yeah. as a first time director that. Uh, I was like, how does he do that? You know, like we'd be shooting a scene and in the stage direction, it said, you know, camera is on Mr. White. The camera stays on Mr. White, slow pushing. And while Mr. Pink, you know, like <laughs> motor mouth, Mr. Pink is off camera. Just, you know, yeah. and we got to the set that day and we're shooting the scene just as he, you know, described it. And then of course the producers and, you know, whoever else was saying, okay, we got it. Just for safety, why don't you turn the camera around and shoot Steve and shoot Mr. Pink? Quentin, no, nope, I got it. I'll, I'm never going to use it. You know, and they, well, you know, when you get to the editing room, you might feel different. Nope, nope, I got it. Let's move on. It's done. I was like, wow, how do you, where, where does that confidence come from? And of course he was right, but it was amazing. He had his vision. Wasn't he supposed to play your part? Well, I think he wrote Mr. Pink for himself. And I still don't know how I they really landed on me. Because um, uh, I know that there were other people that they went out to and maybe other people, you know, who maybe turned it down or weren't available. But I know that he wanted to play it. I don't know if he was talked out of it. But it, somehow it landed to me. And 
the way that Quentin told me about it, we were doing uh, a workshop at Sundance for um, Reservoir Dogs and, you know, like a lot of other films and where they have mentors and, and then they invite these filmmakers who are doing their, their first films. So I was invited to go, but on the condition was that uh, I didn't necessarily have the part. So I thought, well, okay, I'll, I'll go anyway. I mean, I may not be cast in this movie, but at least I get to do that. And you know, I was working with Quentin and then we were taking a bathroom break. And in the bathroom, as we're both peeing, he turns to me and he says, oh, by the way, uh, you, you got the part. You got the part of Mr. Pink. I'm like, what? Oh, thanks. I, I couldn't even shake his hand. You know, it's like, yeah. <laughs> that's how I learned it. Because, <laughs> I mean, you did a couple of movies with him, but you did a lot of movies with the Coens. And you came up together. It seems like you grew up. Your evolution yeah. as an actor is parallel with the evolution of American independent film, you know, post-1980. Yeah, you know, it's funny. You never know when you're working on something. You know, you get close to the people you work with. I mean, I do. and But you never know if that's you know going to translate into your personal lives. Sometimes it overlaps and some, you know. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, like the people who I've stayed friendly with, uh, Jim Jarmish and Sarah Dr Driver, um, other people that I, like Alexander Rockwell, I did this movie In the Soup with, and we've stayed friends and I've worked, you know, and I've, you know, worked in many of his films. Um, you just never know. I mean, so there is, yeah, I mean, I had a small circle of friends, but it's not necessarily all the people that I've worked with. But when we see each other, even if we haven't seen each other for years, it's always it's always nice to have that that feeling of hey, we did you know we did something good together. Yeah, yeah, that I I get that I because I I don't know why even after you know being in some television myself and doing some movies that like I still it, it, some part of my brain wants to believe that everybody's remains friends forever. And you know, <laughs> honestly, you know, sometimes it, it's the last time you see those people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's weird. Yeah. It is where it's like its own. It, it actually has its own full life when you shoot something. Yeah. Like you, when you're done, a lot of times you're thinking like that life is now done. Yeah, I used to go. You know, it it used to be whenever I ended a film, especially if I was on location, you know, and then come back home for days, I would be depressed and not knowing why. I was like, I just had this incredible experience. Why am I so? down now why am i you know and it took me a while to realize oh i'm going to go through this every time i'm just missing everybody i'm missing the experience it's over i may not ever see those people again and you're right sometimes you don't sometimes you get really close to somebody you're working with and then for whatever reason what happened i don't like i thought we were friends you know <laughs> and then it just kind of you know it just dissipates you know and sometimes it's because I live in New York, they live in LA, and, and then, you know, you just don't see each other. It's sort of the liability of the job of the actor is that, you know, you're going to invest emotionally in this thing. And I think that, I, I you know, I'm just thinking about this now out loud, that, you, you know, you share something fairly profound. And and I guess in some ways it, it, it has to remain on the set, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, well, I, I'll tell you, I mean, we're about done here and I, you know, I'll, I'll see you again. I, you know, I'm, I'm more than happy to <laughs> hang I'm out. I'm sorry I couldn't get to your studio, but I do hope that uh, we can see each other in person, but 
Yeah. We may never talk again. I mean, that is the reality. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's true, Steve. We might not. But I'll, but if I see, I'll This is you know, it's it's interesting because like. This is nice. If I see you, I'll say hi, and you'll 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 probably know me and yeah. everything. But like, yeah. I swear to God, I interviewed because you brought up Defoe. I interviewed Defoe, and I don't think it went well. You know, <laughs> like, I mean, he came over, and I don't know what it was. You know, I don't know what kind of guy he is. You know, to his <laughs> friends or anything. But I think I rubbed him the wrong way, and really? and I saw him at the Independent Spirit Awards. And like I know, on some level, I'm to some people, I'm just another journalist who talked to them. Yeah, they, they, I, I can't remember most of them that I've talked to. So I, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm willing to, to, to entertain the idea that I'm not that memorable to people I talk to. But I saw him <laughs> at like the Indie Spirit Awards, and I looked at him, and and, and I, he looked at me, and I swear to God, it was contempt. It wasn't. I don't. It wasn't like who's that guy? Why is he looking at me? It was like that fucker. And I don't know. I don't know. But I don't. I don't think it's going to happen. I remember when I see him again because I go. Sometimes I go years without seeing him. I hope I remember to ask him about this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Ask him. Do, do, do you remember Mark Maron? He'll be like, "Yeah, that guy didn't know my work. He didn't. He did. You know, he was uh, annoying. I don't know what else. It'd be interesting. So wait, if you hear anything, you let me know. Okay, I will. All right, Steve. Good talking to you. Thank you so much, Mark. Really enjoyed it. Steve Buscemi, folks. Heavy stuff. Good man. Uh, the documentary, Dust, The Lingering Legacy of 9-11. Uh, you can go get information on how to watch that at dust-doc.com. Now I'm going to rock my new Explorer guitar. My new Banker Explorer. Banker does a... Uh, Replica of the Karina Gibson Explorer. This thing is fucking... These pickups, man. They make me want to do this. Coming down fast. 